Next, ReachMD's special series, Focus on Diabetes. This month, we're taking an in-depth look at diabetes, the disease now affecting nearly 1 in 10 Americans. Tune in all this month for the latest research, treatments, and prevention methods to gain new insights for your practice. Over 40 children a day are diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in the USA. What are the management issues that clinicians and families face? You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Diabetes. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Luchaz, and joining me from Denver, Colorado, is Dr. Peter Chase, who is Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and Emeritus Executive and Clinical Director of the Barbara Davis Center for Childhood Diabetes in Aurora, Colorado. We're discussing the management of type 1 diabetes in children. Welcome, Dr. Chase. Thank you, Mary. Thanks very much for joining us. How many children in the U.S. have type 1 diabetes, Dr. Chase? Well, uh, this is uh, <laughs> a question that's been debated because it's certainly not as common as type 2, but it's somewhere over a million. And some of the children with type 2 and people with type 2 actually have type 1 now that we can measure antibodies. And we know that the type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition with antibodies against the islet cells in the blood and some people previously that have been diagnosed to have type 2 if the antibodies are measured will actually have type 1 but the estimate is that there are 13,000 children diagnosed in the US each year with type 1 diabetes and surprisingly the majority of the type 1 people because the children grow up and become adults and stay in the adult population for a longer time period are really adults with type 1 diabetes What's the incidence of diabetes in children amongst different ethnic groups in the U.S.? Right. It's, again, varying between the type 1 and the type 2 diabetes. The type 1 diabetes is more common in the Anglo population, whereas the type 2 diabetes in children is much more common in the Hispanic, the African American, and the Native American. There are some of the tribes, such as the Pima, where as high as 50% of the population will develop type 2 diabetes. So it varies a lot by ethnicity. Can you predict exactly who's at risk by using measurements such as C-reactive protein? We can determine who's at risk by uh, both genetic analysis, but this is very expensive and not usually done, in that the HLA typing, the DR3 and DR4, makes up by far the largest percentage of children that get diabetes. For screening, the best method is using the islet cell antibodies. And these are present in up to 95% of children that are going to develop the type 1 diabetes and by definition are not present in children with type 2 diabetes. But there are three primary islet cell antibodies that are routinely looked at and these are highly predictive. In your patient population, how do you choose who to screen? Once you have a patient in a family, do you automatically screen siblings? We are involved in the NIH-funded trial net studies, and we try to screen all siblings. It's not being done as a part of routine population screening. If we weren't in a research study, we probably would not be doing that. But here in Denver, we are part of what used to be the diabetes prevention trial, and it's now called the TrialNet study funded by NIH, which is screening all first-degree relatives. 
You mentioned the high cost of genetic screening. Do you have a ballpark figure for how much that actually is if a patient wanted to get it done? Again, it depends if it's done in a research laboratory yeah. or a commercial laboratory. Uh-huh. In a research laboratory, it can probably be done for as little as $10. In a commercial laboratory, it'll cost probably closer to $100. Dr. Chase, how long have you been treating children with type 1 diabetes? I've been involved for about 40 years. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd like to talk now about diabetic ketoacidosis in very young children. I think it probably can be a, a problem for clinicians. It can present atypically. Can you talk a little bit more about it for me? It can be very hard to recognize in very young children. It can be presenting very much like the flu with vomiting and a sick appearing child. But the trick is noting that they continue to go to the bathroom frequently, polyuria, in spite of starting to be dehydrated. It's the only condition known to mankind in which someone can be dehydrated and still going to the bathroom frequently because of the sugar in the urine carrying the water out of the body. But it can be very hard to pick up in a young child just because it very much mimics the symptoms of a flu and you have to be thinking about it. And most physicians now have a glucose meter of one sort or another in their office and by doing a blood glucose just even on a finger stick or a urine test and dipping the urine test for sugar can save a life uh, very dramatically. But such a simple test in every child that's sick could result in a number of lives being saved every year. For those of you who are just tuning in, welcome to a special segment, Focus on Diabetes, on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Lushaz, and I'm speaking with Dr. Peter Chase about the management of paediatric diabetes. Dr. Chase, we're talking about diabetic ketoacidosis in children, DKA. What's the average length of stay after a presentation of a child with DKA? Again, the length of stay in the hospital varies dramatically. Mm. We have moved in the last 20 years to doing most of our education on an outpatient setting so that once the child's no longer in DKA, which usually takes one to two days, uh, we're more apt to discharge the child and do the education as an outpatient. Now, the very young child, the child under age five, we'll keep in the hospital for a longer time just because they're a little bit harder to get regulated initially and the parents are usually going in many directions. So uh, with a very young child, we'll tend to keep them in the hospital for much of the initial education, maybe four or five days. There are other countries where children are kept in the hospital for a week or two. And I would say in the last 20 years, that's almost never happened in our situation. We do most of our education now as an outpatient. But the family, I would stress that initial education of the family is probably the most important determining factor in which child's going to do well in the long run and which child is not because the family, if you think about it, does four or more blood sugar checks a day at home and helps to adjust insulin levels. And they do 95% of the diabetes management And then the family comes in after the new onset. They're coming in maybe a week later and then a month later. And then eventually they're coming in every three months for maybe a one-hour visit. And all of that time in between the three-month visits, the family's doing all of the management. So initial education of the family is absolutely essential in order to end up with optimal management throughout the child's life. 
And what's the most important thing apart from education to tell a parent of a newly diagnosed diabetic child? It must be obviously you know, very distressing to learn that your child has a chronic illness. Do you have any tips for physicians? Well, I think treating the person with diabetes as a normal individual, and I will share that I have a stepson who's got diabetes at age four, who's now 39, an executive producer in television programming. So you can grow up and be a very normal person, but don't treat the person as invalid or an abnormal person. Treat them as a normal child. In terms of the education of the children as outpatients, are there different types of programs targeted at different age groups? How does that work? Well, as I've already said, the very young child will keep in the hospital longer initially. I think that with the child under age 10, that it's entirely the parents that do all the management, whereas the adolescent, the child over age 10 or 11, 12, somewhere in there, depending on their maturity, will be teaching more the teenager or preteen themselves to do the majority of the management. But the parents still have to be involved in a a regular basis, so the whole family has to be involved in this concept of it takes a family is very, very true for diabetes. I'd like now to talk about blood glucose monitoring devices for children, and particularly the concept of needle fear. What's new? What's being developed? Well, the meters have gotten more and more accurate. They've been around for 25 years, and some of them now have been shown to be within 95 to 98% as accurate as a hospital blood glucose determination. And they're able to be done in smaller amounts of blood, and it's gotten easier for the families. They don't have to do as many control-type things to make sure the meter's working correctly. And then more recently, of course, in some of the more sophisticated families, we're moving to continuous glucose monitoring where a subcutaneous probe is put into the subcutaneous tissue and it measures glucose levels every one minute or every five minutes. And in the past with blood glucose checking, we might know what the glucose levels are three or four seconds out of the day. Now we know every minute of the day what the glucose levels are doing. So things are changing even at this time and we're just moving into what I call the third era of diabetes management with continuous glucose monitors. Uh-huh. And with the subcutaneous probe, how robust is that in terms of little kids? Well, it varies. Uh, you obviously have to have enough real estate, uh, meaning an area that's got enough fat to be able to <laughs> put a little probe underneath. But some of the younger children actually do better at it than do the teenagers. And part of this is that the parents still have control and do a lot of the monitoring and making sure that the probes are put in in the correct place and kept in properly and so forth. So sometimes the younger children actually do better than the teens. What should be a reasonable hemoglobin A1C target for young children? Again, this varies by age group. And for the very young child where preventing low blood sugars is essential, because low blood sugars can affect memory and brain development, we have a higher A1C desired level, well, say 8%, whereas in a teenager, we want them below 7.5%, and in an adult, below 7%. And again, the hemoglobin A1C test has revolutionized management because we can know essentially every second of the day for the past three months 
how someone's been doing as a gross determinant by measuring this glycosylated protein, the hemoglobin molecule in the blood. And that's advanced our care dramatically in the last 25 years. You mentioned the complications, particularly for younger patients of hypoglycemic attacks. What's the exact age group that's most vulnerable for CNS damage from hypos? Well, again, the brain is developing still in the first four years of life. The myelin is forming around the nerve fibers and so forth. So we think that the severe hypoglycemic reactions, which is one of the main complications in diabetes and complication of insulin therapy, is more detrimental in the preschooler and the child under age four when the myelin lipid is still developing around the nerve cell and the child is still developing brain-wise. So it's probably more detrimental to the very young child to be having, say, a seizure unconscious episode from low blood sugar than it might be in an older person. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Peter Chase, for being our guest. We've been discussing how clinicians and families can best manage diabetes in children. I'm Dr. Mary Luchars. You've been listening to a special segment to focus on diabetes on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at reachmd.com. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Diabetes. For a program guide and complete list of shows, please visit us at reachmd.com. In today's dynamic healthcare environment, the role of physician assistants and nurse practitioners is ever expanding. I'm physician assistant Lisa DeAndre Linnell. And I'm nurse practitioner Mimi Secor. We're the hosts of Partners in Practice, the new series for advanced practice clinicians on ReachMD, the channel for healthcare professionals. So join us on XM Satellite Radio, ReachMD.com, or the medical radio application on your iPhone. ReachMD, the channel for healthcare professionals.